0: It won't take you long to figure out that I just think differently than other people. Hey there, it's Stephen Dubner, and that's my Freakonomics friend and co-author Steve Levitt. I've worked for two decades studying strange phenomena, human behavior, and weird circumstances. But Levitt is now ready to start his own podcast. It's called People I Mostly Admire. Listen on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hi, everyone, Noor here. I know, I know you thought the show was over, but guess what? We were so overwhelmed by all of the amazing stories you sent in, we decided to make another bonus episode. I am so grateful to each and every one of you for sending in your tweets, your Apple Podcast reviews, your voicemails, your emails, your text messages, sharing your own stories. And I wanted to make sure that we shared as many of those stories as we could. So stay subscribed. Our special Sold in America bonus will drop sometime next week. In the meantime, there's another Stitcher show I'd highly recommend you checking out. It's called Unladylike. It's hosted by Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin, and it's all about the surprising and complicated and sometimes really fun world of feminism. They just wrapped an amazing season covering everything from feminist birdwatching to gaslighting in the doctor's office to slam dunks in the WNBA. I was featured on an episode where I talk about reporting on sex work based on my experience creating Sold in America. One of their latest episodes is a must-listen. Kristen and Caroline interview a sexual assault nurse examiner about how to get a rape kit— and how they could restore consent, dignity, and justice to patients. Here it
2: is.
3: What do you like about being a forensic nurse? We know that sexual assault is a crime of, of power. It's taking the control, the autonomy from that patient. And sexual assault nurses are the best tool to help return that autonomy back to the patients, because that's, you know, that's what was taken from them.
0: Lady a lady like a lady like a lady like a lady.
2: Hello, and welcome to Unladylike, the show that finds out what happens when women break the rules. I'm Caroline. I'm Kristen. And today, we're on a mission to
4: not make another super depressing story about rape kits, also known as sexual assault forensic evidence kits. Because, Caroline, I'm betting that if listeners have heard really anything about rape kits... It's probably super depressing.
2: Yeah, uh, folks might have heard about rape kits going untested across the country and cases of serial offenders going unnoticed because of the backlog. Rape kit news gets real bleak real fast, y'all. Yeah, but we want to learn about rape kits not simply as tools
4: of law enforcement that, yes, get real bleak real fast, unfortunately, but also as vital resources in pursuing health care, healing and justice for sexual assault
2: survivors. Yeah, and that's why today we're talking to Trisha Sheridan. She's a sexual assault nurse examiner and forensic nurse trained to collect rape kits, testify
3: about them in sexual assault cases, and care for patients in crisis. If I walk into a, a level one trauma center, I should be able to have a sexual assault nurse examiner um, that's certified and trained do my exam. It is a vital part of healthcare, and we need to talk about it. And who better to talk about this healthcare with than
2: Trisha? She's worked as a nurse in Ohio, Washington, Georgia, and rural Texas. And you guys, she is a badass.
4: Yeah, Caroline, if we had an Unladylike Hall of Fame, Trisha might be my first nomination.
2: Yeah, I think she'd be right there at the top. Mm -hmm. And that's why Trisha is our specially trained guide to help us find out what really happens when you get a rape kit, and why are they important beyond the justice system.
4: And get this, y'all. Why did it take Playboy to make rape kits a reality?
2: Okay, y'all, so let's start with the basics. What is a rape kit?
4: Well, Caroline, whenever I think of rape kits, I'm not even kidding. I imagine like a Law & Order edition caboodle. Yeah,
2: I think it's the word kit, but I agree with you.
4: Mm -hmm. Well, as Trisha is here
3: to tell us, they're a lot more basic than that. So, quote unquote, rape kits boxes. The kit um, they vary in each state, but generally, what it is is um, swabs and envelopes and a list of places of where to swab on the patient. That's what what you think of with the kit. Kits vary. In Georgia, it's a like smaller. Um, white envelope that has a half a dozen envelopes and swabs and slides in it. In Texas, as as you can imagine, it's big. It's like, you know, (laughs) Texas, everything is big. Literally, it varies with each state, whether there's paperwork that's required or not. It's the swabs and the envelopes or boxes that we use to package and then we document. And that's what gets turned over to law enforcement in the crime lab. So ideally,
4: if you are assaulted and you want to get a rape kit, you'd go to the nearest emergency room, tell them what's happened, and then ask to see a sexual assault nurse examiner, a, a SANE for short, someone like Trisha.
2: Yeah, and the SANE does two things. Number one, she administers a sexual assault exam, which is like a more comprehensive checkup. And number two, as part of that exam, if requested, she collects the forensic rape kit, those swabs and envelopes that Trisha was just talking about. Also as part of the
4: exam, the nurse might take photos for documentation, she may write notes, and she may treat injuries or give the patient medication. The SANE's documentation in the full exam could be used as evidence down the road as well. But more importantly, Tricia says, that comprehensive exam is about restoring some dignity to the patient.
2: What is the first thing that you say to a patient
3: when you walk into the room for this type of exam? I introduce myself, and I say before we do anything else, is there anything that you need at this moment? Um, because you know, I I need them to know that I'm there for them, and that their needs are first and foremost in my mind. So, is there before we do anything else? Is there anything that you need right now? Is it water, pain medicine? Do, what do you need? And if they say, well, I'm dying for food or I need to use the bathroom, well, I know that I can still let them do that, and I'll just collect a swab real quick, whether I need it or not, and then I can, based on their history, know if I need to take that swab. Or I can collect their urine and just hold it, you know, but I'm giving, like I'm addressing any need, and I'm, again, it's returning that autonomy to the patient as soon as I I start interacting with them. Like, the first thing I do is say, I need you, like, if you're willing to give me consent to do this. Every time I go to examine or touch that patient's body, I say to them, is it OK if I touch you? Is it OK? Um, if I am collecting swabs, I'll say to them, do you want to collect this swab? Do you, you know? So it's about returning that, that power, you know they get to say this is my body and i'm going to i'm going to allow what happens to it happen even if you tell me right now that you're okay with this exam we're halfway through it you tell me no we're not collecting evidence we're not going for it i stop end of story the reality of rape and
2: assault is that it renders our bodies the crime scenes So repeatedly requesting patients' consent is a vital part of what sexual assault nurse examiners provide. And,
4: Caroline, we should mention here, too, that anyone can request a rape kit and keep it anonymous. That is your right. And this is called a Jane Doe
2: kit. And providing this type of trauma-informed care, care that seeks to treat the trauma a patient has suffered rather than re-victimizing them, can be a tricky balancing act. Because patient-centric care and evidence collection
3: aren't always perfectly aligned. The way we collect evidence and the breakthroughs in evidence has been enormous, right? So touch DNA is the big thing. So if you've been grabbed, touched, licked, spit on, all of those things, we can collect that evidence. One thing that we see a lot is after an assault, a patient will bathe or shower because they want to wash every bit of that situation off of them. And, and we want them to know, like, don't do that. Like, I know that's what you, what you feel you need to do, but come in, let us examine you first, and then take the shower. Um, people who are assaulted with a tampon or a pad, keep it Bring it to us. I know that sounds gross, but it's great evidence. You know, don't shower, don't don't bathe, don't um, brush your teeth. If you can help, not eating or drinking, all of those things. But more importantly. What I would like them to know is that even if they do all those things, I'm still going to see you and I'm still going to do the best exam that I can for them, right? And we know if it's a, you know, someone with a vagina who is assaulted with someone with a penis and they ejaculate inside them, sperm, semen, it lives inside for 5 days. So even though you may have taken 16 showers, I might still be able to collect something. So come in and let me Um, examine you. Let us perform healthcare on you. Another reason
4: to see a certified SANE? They're trained to understand not only the type of post-traumatic care you need, but also the proper environment.
2: So how long does the exam take and who's in the
3: room when it's going on? So the exam um, can take anywhere from... I'm going to be generous and say an hour at the low end, um, you know, two, four, five, six hours, depending on the steps, right? Depending on what's happening with the patient, Um, who's in the room with the patient. So the patient comes in, um, we consent. The history should be done with the nurse and the patient. That's it. Law enforcement shouldn't be in the room. A family member should not be in the room. Um, so really, it should just be um, the, the nurse and the patient. Um, and then for the exam, it should be whoever the patient wants. So if they want an advocate with them or if they want a loved one, friend, family member, they could be in for the exam as well. The advocate Trisha's is talking about is a person, often
4: a volunteer, who works with a rape crisis center. An advocate can give the patient information about their options, help them decide if they want to press charges, or just be there to comfort them.
2: And the reason why no one but the patient, not even that advocate, should be in the room for the history is because that's when the nurse asks the patient to detail everything that happened to them. Trisha needs the patient to be as honest as possible, and she also needs to be able to say later, if called to testify in court, that no one was influencing the patient to say anything one way or the other. So this whole process, the sexual assault medical exam, the forensic rape kit, the
4: compassionate sane, it's the best case scenario in an already worst case scenario, but way too often Patients are not given this basic standard of care.
2: Yeah, and actually, that's what inspired Tricia to become a SANE.
4: About eight years ago, Tricia was working in Washington State as a nurse practitioner in a women's health clinic.
3: And I kept seeing all these patients who would come see me, like, weeks, months, years after a sexual assault, and they had never had any medical care. they had never reported to law enforcement, and I I just couldn't figure out why, So I um, got involved with the local sexual assault response team, which it's a multidisciplinary team with people like law enforcement, advocacies, people representing the hospitals, and tried to figure out what was going on with that and um, learned a little bit. But, you know, mostly I learned that there were no sane nurses in the area. So fast forward a couple weeks, and I'm looking at my schedule, and there's a patient um, that's marked as a walk-in, and it says, Rape. And I'm like, what is happening? Like, tell her to come in right away. So she comes in. She can barely walk. She can't stand up. And I, you know, I kind of get a little bit of a history from her. And she, she's at the end of the evidence collection window for, for that state. And I'm begging her. I said, you know, please, please, like, go to the ER. Let's get you care. I'm happy to see you. I mean, I could tell. I didn't know if she was injured, if she had an infection, what was going on. But I knew she needed medical care. So I was like, please, please, please go in. The patient was hesitant.
2: But Tricia knew that if this woman ever wanted to have evidence for a trial, she
3: needed to get a full sexual assault exam done at a hospital. After about, you know, 45 minutes to an hour, she said the words that changed my life. She said, I'll go if you go. And I said, okay. So they went over together. But when they got there,
4: there was no sexual assault nurse examiner. There was no SANE.
3: Instead, a nurse who was in training was assigned to do the exam. And when the nurse found out that the patient wasn't sure if she wanted to work with law enforcement, she then proceeded to say, why would you waste my time? You know, this is a a rough process. Why would you want to do this? And I'm like... What is happening? So I told her, I said, please, just do the exam. Just do it. So she starts the exam. And of course, she didn't know how to do the pelvic exam. So a male physician walks in. He sits down. He does the pelvic exam without talking to the patient, really. He's talking to the nurse the whole time, saying, this is how you collect the swabs. This is what you do. Um, finishes while he's still sitting in between the woman, the patient's legs, looks up at her and says, "Have you ever had herpes? No. Well, you have herpes now. That's why you're in pain." <clears throat> Stands up, right, says, "I'm gonna, um, I'll write you for some medicine," and, and walks out of the room. And that was the day I said I will do whatever it takes to become a sexual assault nurse. Trisha went home and started
2: Googling. She eventually landed on the International Association of Forensic Nurses website and found out that to become a certified SANE, she'd need to go through 64 to 80 hours of coursework, depending on whether she wanted to be certified in pediatrics, practice 300 hours of patient care, and then sit for a board exam. But Trisha wasn't daunted
4: by the training. She was energized. She wanted to do everything in her power to ensure that no patient was ever mistreated like the woman in Washington.
3: You know, within the first month when I moved to Georgia, I called the crime lab. I wasn't even practicing at Georgia at the time, but I said, Hi, my name is Tricia. I'm a sexual assault nurse. I need to talk to you about what you need in Georgia to process kits because I want to make sure that people know what needs to happen and that we're practicing best practice and that, that patients are able to get the care that they they absolutely need and deserve.
4: We were curious whether SANE training also takes into account at all sexual orientation or gender identities
3: of patients that you're dealing with. They absolutely are included in training because vulnerability increases your risk of victimization, right? Why I'm good at my job, why sexual assault nurse examiners are good at their job, is that when a patient comes in, I know that they're a patient with individual and very specific needs. Now, whether that is a person who's non-binary, whether it's a person who identifies as a trans male, trans female, uh, a woman of color, a um, an indigenous population, I have to be able to say, okay, this is where you're at, this is where... What needs that are very specific to you, um, you know. One of the the things that happens with male sexual assault um, is I'm going to put them. I'm not. Let me make that clear. But some people may put them in the exact same position that they were victimized in, that they were assaulted in. I need to know that that's not okay. How can I do an exam and 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 make sure that this patient is okay? Collect evidence if necessary and warranted. And make sure that I'm not re-victimizing. So yes, in our training, we specifically talk about um, what makes patients vulnerable and how to to meet the needs um, of everybody.
2: All this training, all this specialized information about how to practice medicine without re-traumatizing a patient, this is exactly why it's so important for saints to be the people who carry out these exams.
4: Right, because sexual assault nurse examiners like Trisha know how to perform pelvic exams with care and inclusivity. They know about the criminal justice process.
2: They know how to obtain valid samples of evidence. And they also know it looks
3: nothing like what we see on Law & Order. When you see TV shows or movies or... You hear the stories of yes the patient came in they made them get naked stand on a sheet they blacklit them they swabbed every part of their body they they made them cut their fingernails they plucked hair that is not healthcare that is not Trauma-informed care. And if that wasn't based on their history, that is completely inaccurate. And that's the thing. Like, if you heard that, and I'm sure you have heard a story like that before or have seen it in, you know, some fictionalized capacity, does that make you want to go into an exam? Especially when you are in a crisis mode, there's no way, if that is what your frame of reference is, that you're going to go in and seek health care from someone. And that's what I wish that people would understand, is that that is not what a sexual assault exam is. And law enforcement doesn't a know how to do a good history um, that's medically um, accurate as well as you know just getting the suspect information that they want, um, and they definitely don't know how to collect evidence in any way from a trauma informed. You know, they 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 don't know how to do speculum exams, anagenital exams, anything like that. And I'm not hating on our law enforcement colleagues. It's just not in their scope of practice.
4: And Caroline, understanding how rape kits are just one piece of this type of trauma-centered healthcare, like it really helps me understand why Trisha wants to see Anyone who's been sexually assaulted or abused, even
3: if they never want to report their assault to the police. Anyone who has been sexually assaulted should have a medical exam two reasons. One, to make sure that they're medically okay, right? To help um, you know, if they need pregnancy prophylaxis, um, sexually transmitted infections, we can we can give them medications so they don't get one. So that's really important. And then, like I said earlier, coming in and having an exam starts the return of the autonomy to the patient. So that alone, I think is an important reason to have an exam after a sexual assault. Okay, Caroline. So now, thanks to Tricia, we
4: know what a rape kit is and who should administer them, but also the value that the entire sexual assault exam has when properly administered in that
2: patient-centered approach. Next up... It's time to travel back to the 1970s and learn about the bootstrapped history of rape kits and sexual assault nurse examiners, because these rape kits didn't just invent themselves.
4: Plus, that Playboy cameo I know y'all have been waiting to hear, or at least I've been
3: waiting to tell y'all about, don't go away.
4: We're back. And Caroline, the kind of trauma-sensitive, patient-centered care for survivors that Trisha was just telling us about is a shockingly recent
2: development. No, really. If we jump back to the early 1970s, the term sexual harassment didn't even exist. Spousal rape was perfectly legal in most states. Even the word rape was virtually unmentionable. So
4: unmentionable, there were practically no standard protocols for evidence collection
2: tailored to sexual violence and abuse. So, no wonder then, it took a lot of work, largely led by a lot of self determined women to start really figuring out the resources and care that survivors of these crimes need and deserve.
4: Yeah, because we'd like to think that maybe the Departments of Health and Justice just got together one day forever ago and were like, hey, here's a great idea. Let's make sure we don't treat women like garbage when they've been sexually assaulted and maybe investigate rape like, you know, a
2: crime. But it didn't exactly go down like that. Sounds to me like it's time to unpack some claptrap.
4: Unpack the Claptrap is a part of the show where we dig through patriarchy's biohazardous materials to find out, in this case, why rape kits are the way they are. And to find out, we're time traveling back to the early 1970s in Chicago. That's where a nonprofit manager and victims advocate named Marty Goddard set to work on developing the first rape kits.
2: Yeah, Marty Goddard is basically like the badass fairy godmother of rape kits. Only instead of a magic wand, Marty discovered the almost
4: magical power of female rage.
2: Hmm. It all started in 1973. Marty was working with the nonprofit National Runaway Switchboard on fundraising and grants. As part of her training, she also answered switchboard calls and soon learned that a lot of young folks were running away to escape sexual abuse.
4: Marty was horrified even more to discover how little legal recourse these kids had. Nobody in law enforcement was documenting and investigating these crimes in any standardized, consistent way. And all that got Marty wondering why the hell victims of sexual violence and abuse weren't getting more attention by the justice system.
2: Later that year, feminist fate struck. A Chicago women's group focused on rape justice activism asked Marty to come give a talk about how to fundraise. After the fundraising spiel, Marty decided to stick around, partly because basically nobody else was talking about that kind of stuff. Not to mention, Marty herself was a survivor. And this meeting was
4: so significant for Marty because it really began connecting the dots for her.
2: Marty had to know more. And soon enough, she'd hatched a plan. She traveled a bunch for work
4: and decided whenever she went to a different city, she'd hit up the local police to do a little gumshoe work. She'd literally just walk in and ask, what's happening in your city and state regarding victims of rape? How are they handled? Do you have any brochures? Like, no, really. Like, she would ask if they had brochures.
2: And, you know, much to Marty's surprise, officers pretty much told her whatever they knew. So, bit by bit, she and a friend compiled this whole patchwork of various procedures that the different precincts used for investigating rape cases.
4: At the start, her main allies in this were a bunch of men in high places, like the Illinois state attorney general, a police sergeant, the Chicago Hospital Council president, you know, like all the people you'd invite to your cocktail parties, Caroline. So Marty discovered through talking to them that the key was to get hospitals and law enforcement working better together to develop a better evidence collection process at the front end.
2: That's right. She developed a team of hospital and law enforcement folks to look at the issue from every angle. And then she called up the Chicago Crime Lab to learn all she could about what was working and what wasn't. It sounds a lot like Trisha,
4: Caroline. And in an oral history interview for the University of Akron, Marty says that when she called that Chicago crime lab, they told her, quote, Mart, we don't get evidence. Sometimes people try and they take two slides with swabs from, say, the vagina or the mouth or the rectum. They put it on the slides. They make the slides. They rubber band them together. And they're face to face. So there goes that. It's worthless. It's just absolutely worthless. We don't get hair. We don't get fingernail scrapings. Nothing's marked to tell you what's vagina and what is rectum. We don't get decent clothing evidence. And Caroline, they weren't getting decent clothing evidence because folks in the ER would often cut off whatever clothes victims were wearing. And that not only destroyed evidence, but also meant patients would be sent home in paper hospital gowns and slippers with, like, no concern for their dignity or sense of privacy.
2: So in 1975 and 76, Marty starts working on her rape kit prototype. But she had no money to actually buy all of the combs, slides, swabs, folders, and instructional materials she needed to make 10,000 kits to distribute across the state. Despite all of her fundraising experience, with men largely controlling the corporate and philanthropic purse strings and rape being a super taboo topic, folks didn't exactly rush to help support her effort.
4: So Marty called up a friend named Margaret Standish and tells her, Margaret, I'm in trouble. And Margaret's like, girl, I got you. My foundation will pay for it. Foundation as in the Playboy Foundation,
2: which Margaret was helping run alongside Christine Hefner daughter of Hugh. That's right. The bunny ponied up the money, honey. But there was still another snag. Marty now had the materials for 10,000 kits, but assembling the prototypes was going to take her and her tiny staff forever. Re-enter Margaret Standish.
4: Margaret calls up Marty with an idea. And again, I'm quoting from Marty's oral history here. Margaret said,
2: everybody just loves
4: a Playboy bunny. And we have all these senior citizens who want to volunteer. So we're going to provide the sandwiches and the coffee. And we're going to just invite them up to the Playboy offices. And we're going to give you a huge room with all these assembly tables, you know, folding tables. And we're going to have all the components shipped to Playboy. And we're going to set everything out. And you can come and decide how you want it done. Train them and they'll do it. And Marty says, that's what they did.
2: Okay, Wow. Okay, so you're telling me America's first rape kits were assembled by senior citizen Playboy volunteers who were lured in with sandwiches. That is amazing. And that is a tactic that would absolutely work on me. I know. I mean, some
4: feminists were scandalized by the funding source. No surprise. But Marty knew that nobody else was
2: going to fund such a taboo issue. And if the money had to come from Playboy, so be it. The prototypes caught on quickly. Doctors, victims' advocates, and detectives alike could see they were a vast improvement on, well, doing virtually nothing. And in 1978, the official kits hit Chicago's hospitals. Twenty-six emergency rooms made the kits part of their standard practice for gathering evidence. After seven years, Marty decided the mission was complete and shut down her team, which she'd called the Citizens Committee for Victim Assistance. By then, she'd not only led the development of the rape kit, but she had also trained thousands of law enforcement, hospital staff, and prosecutors across Illinois.
4: Other states took note, and Illinois became kind of a model for establishing rape kit protocols across the country. Now, you know it's wild, Caroline. At the exact same time that Marty was developing her rape kit, there was another parallel movement afoot. In the early 1970s, self-organized nurses in Memphis, Honolulu, and even Amarillo, Texas, independently began developing the earliest sexual assault examination training
2: and patient-centered standards. The first Trishas, Caroline! I'm getting chills. And in 1982, Texas is where a pioneering nurse named Virginia Lynch pulled a Marty and began bootstrapping what would eventually become the SANE program – A decade later, the International Society of Forensic Nursing was formed. And three years after that, in 1995, the American Nursing Association officially recognized sexual assault nurse examiners as a specialty.
4: Sisters were doing it for
2: themselves, Caroline. Which brings us back to Tricia.
4: Who really hits home
3: how important today's rape kits are for a patient's really entire future. So you can look at it from, from two ways. If you want to look at it from it paves the way of the future of their process through the medical and legal system, that's one. So if they have a bad interaction, are they going to continue to interact with law enforcement, investigators, prosecution, further health care? So that's one side of it. Paving their future, it also has bigger ramifications because we know that that these traumatic events lead to long-term health outcomes. Now, everybody thinks, okay, so victims or survivors of sexual assault, they're at higher risk for depression, PTSD, anxiety, suicide, um, drug and alcohol abuse, um, further re-victimization. And those things are all true. But they're also at risk for long-term comorbidities like diabetes, hypertension, chronic pain, migraines. I mean, it's so vital that, that we help these patients now so they're not dealing with obesity, hypertension, you know, 10, 20, 50 years down the road.
2: Up next, Trisha gives us the real talk and some much needed nuance about getting those rape kits tested.
4: Don't go away. We're back, and we've been talking with Tricia Sheridan, advanced nurse practitioner and professor at Emory University, and clearly our new ladylike <laughs> <Light> crush.
2: <laughs> and we've also established what sexual assault exams and rape kits are. We've hammered home the importance of sexual assault nurse examiners like our crush, Tricia. But now we want to talk about where we've been hearing about rape kits recently and why those headlines may not have the full story. First up, the backlog.
4: This morning, we have disturbing new evidence of the backlog of untested rape kits in crime labs.
0: It found more than 3,000 DNA samples sitting on evidence shelves at police departments across the state. More than 9,000 untested
2: kits exist in five big cities. Even though federal law enforcement began looking into untested rape kits back in the late 90s and early 2000s, in February 2018, The Washington Post reported there are still as many as 400,000 backlogged rape kits across the U.S., There's been a lot of outrage surrounding those hundreds of thousands of
4: kits, and rightly so. Many of them were never tested or improperly tested or improperly collected or even lost. Thankfully, Trisha, who basically exists at the intersection of nuance and sensitivity, has the perspective to lend to this part of the conversation. Because it's not just test the kits, don't test them, get rid of the backlog. It's also about What does the person or people at the center of the situation want and need? So run us through what happens once you've completed the exam and collected the evidence. So
3: I'm going to tell you what is best practice, and then if you want, I can tell you what happens. Um, But what, what, (laughs) what generally happens is... So if I have the kit, the patient is reporting, I'm going to call law enforcement, and I'm going to say, I have a, I have a kit that's ready to go for you. Now, if I work in a forensic unit, I may have the capability to store in proper chain of custody, and then they can come pick up whenever they want. But most of the time, I need to stay with that kit or have it in a... Um, uh, a restricted, locked area that no one can get to except for myself or, um, you know, someone else designated. And I'm signing over chain of custody. And then that goes to law enforcement. Then law enforcement does their stuff and they send it over to um, whoever, whatever crime lab processes the kits for them. That's the biggest thing is it goes from me to law enforcement, law enforcement to the crime lab. Now, it varies in states, right? Because in different states, you have different time limits for the patient. So a patient can come in and say, I want evidence collected, but I'm not willing to work with law enforcement. And in some states, you have one year and some, some, you have six months, two years. So in those cases, um, Either there is a designated crime lab that just holds on to the non-tested kits, the ones that are not reported, or um, maybe it's the healthcare facility has that um, in place. That that's how it should work.
2: Yeah, how it should work, but Tricia says not always how it does work. In fact, with the backlog making headlines recently, a lot of states have passed new laws setting time limits on how long law enforcement or crime labs or the hospitals themselves can sit on the kit. Which is good. Laws like these have definitely helped some states like Oregon completely clear its backlog. But Tricia says that these laws can also mean that a patient's right to wait, to not test a kit right away, to think about it for a few months like they've been promised they can do, can be deprioritized. Now if I'm the
3: patient, why is that being taken away from me? And that is, you know, we have such a strong reaction um to the rape kit backlog. We don't have that same reaction of, you know, to people who perpetrate violence against women and 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 coming up with solutions for that that we focus on this backlog but it's tricky and it's not it's not an easy clear-cut solution and that that patient should have the right to say i know if i don't get a kit d- collected within that time frame which is usually somewhere between 96 and 20, 120 hours then that evidence can be lost so this is my window to say yes collect it so i have that choice, but I'm not ready to, to turn it over to law enforcement. I'm not ready to to go through this process. So give me that time to decide. And now you're taking that away. How is that fair to that patient? It seems like it undermines the entire
4: premise of like how consent is so instrumental to you, the whole right. sane process. Right. Do you think that the constant focus, almost exclusive focus on the backlog, which is a problem for sure, but do you think that there's maybe an overemphasis on that that could be discouraging people from even getting rape kits to begin with?
3: Right. Why would I go get a Why would I get a rape kit done if um, it's just going to be backlogged or, you know, not processed? So, I do think that it discourages, but also if we're only focusing on the evidence collection part of it's a sexual assault exam, it's a forensic medical exam. It is the point is is not to do a kit. I mean, yes, that is a, that is one of the steps, and it is important. You know, we we want the the perpetrators caught, right? But if we look at statistics, we know it's less than 3% of perpetrators actually get prosecuted and go all the way to getting some sort of you know, judicial consequence. So then if we're focusing on the kit, how does that help the patient? You know, What we need to be focusing on is A, preventing sexual violence or violence of any kind, but that's a whole nother thing that we don't do. Um, but so we need to focus on, on violence prevention, and then we need to focus on the actual true purpose of the forensic medical exam, which is return, trauma-informed care. It's health care. That's the point of the exam.
2: Are rape kits effective tools for bringing victims justice?
3: Yes, I've had numerous um, cases where I was able to collect DNA, and that did help um, with prosecution. So, especially in this day and age with all of the the shows on TV, like, you know, people think that DNA is, is. if you don't have dna it didn't happen or whatever. So when you can collect evidence and you can get dna, um that's that's great. It, you know, it can help with trying to to get justice. Um it is a tool, but again, it's just one small tool. And if we only focus on that part, patients are not getting the need that their needs met. And and they won't they won't come to see us. And that's not acceptable. Okay. So that's the backlog. But another issue that gets
4: much less coverage is how patients are often billed, yes, billed,
2: for sexual assault exams. Just to give you an idea of how much this stuff costs, a study published in the American Journal of Public Health examined the hospital billing records of women who sought rape kits back in 2013. It found that even with private insurance, you're going to pay about $950 on average, or around 14% of the total cost of care, while insurance kicks in the rest.
4: And if listeners are like, wait, what? Sexual assault survivors have had to pay for rape kits? Well, A, not always, and B, they're not supposed to. The Violence Against Women Act, or VAWA, provides federal funding and support for rape kit testing and requires compliant states to provide rape kits free of charge. However, Caroline, like Trisha told us at the top of this episode, that depends on where you live.
2: Yeah, each state handles billing differently, which means that depending on where you live, it could be fairly straightforward to avoid getting stuck with a bill. Or you could end up getting charged thousands and all of these complicating factors prove, again, why dealing with a trained sane, in particular can help steer patients in the right direction.
3: Sometimes our ER colleagues don't know that when they do a sexual assault exam that this patient is going to get all sorts of bills. Because though the forensic medical exam might be covered by their you know, state funding, whether that's the attorney general's office or crime victim's comp, But the ER provider may not be covered who did the medical screening exam and maybe examined them for, you know, other issues while they were there, or the medication. We have to know how to get them that medication without allowing them to get these huge bills. But. Again, if people aren't aware—and I don't mean the the patients—I mean the healthcare providers—if they don't understand um, the pay the payer system, then yes, patients are going to end up with, in some cases, astronomical bills.
2: That is so fucked up, right?
3: Right? Yeah. Yeah.
4: I just wonder, <clears throat> from your experience, what the public like awareness of this situation is because I mean you can probably hear in mine and
3: Caroline's (laughs) voice like
4: it fills us with so much rage the thought of anyone anyone being stuck with a bill not to mention that marginalized groups are Mm going to be disproportionately affected by this as well this seems like injustice piled on injustice and is it just something that is people are getting away with because we aren't talking about it
3: enough or do people just not care um i would like to say that people do care although as we see play out daily that is not the case um I, but i do think it's that people aren't informed and we don't say the word vagina like let alone talk about sexual assault right like we're we're not talking about um, the nuances of, of of sexual violence. So we think of rape kit. We think of you know law and order, and oh, you just go in and get it. And they don't realize that healthcare in America is a business, right? It costs for everything. And so of course it's going to cost for um a sexual assault kit and people don't realize like who's paying for that. And we think, you know, because we hear about we hear about vawa all the time. Um and so we think, oh, well, vawa will just take care of it, you know. They'll 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 refund it and it'll just take care of. But it's so state specific, it's so hospital specific and if you don't if you don't care, I guess, if you don't if it's not your top priority, you just assume that someone else is taking care of it and that, you know, victim isn't going to get a bill. You know, someone's going to take care of that. And, and so I, I, I do think it's a, a total lack of awareness or understanding. We'll post resources about victims' compensation over
4: at our site, but you can check out organizations like the Rape, Abuse and Incest National Network and the National Association of Crime Victim Compensation Boards to get more state-specific info.
2: And Kristen, another big reason it was so important for us to hear from Tricia is because there are simply not enough folks doing this work in the field. We know SANE's can really help people navigate the complicated process of paying for a rape kit, but they're in short supply. Out of about 4 million registered nurses in the country, only about 2,600 of those are trained SANE's. And only about 17% of hospitals have access to SANE's. That means that
4: in many situations when folks walk into the hospital seeking a sexual assault exam, they'll be met with healthcare personnel who aren't properly trained and the evidence that they collect might not be useful to law enforcement and they could re-traumatize patients or patients might end up waiting hours for the nearest sane to get to their hospital.
3: Well, I mean, for instance, you're in Georgia. Um, I was just looking at the statistics um, for a grant in Georgia. There are less than 25 certified sexual assault nurse examiners in the entire state of Georgia. There's less than 10 pediatric sexual assault certified nurses in all of Georgia.
4: My eyes are, like, just jumping out of my head
3: Right? (laughs) Right? It's crazy. It's insane.
4: Is there any— good news about about rape kits and sayings that that you would like to shout out of
3: um, things that are are happening in in positive ways in this field? I mean, I think people are talking about it more. So that's great. I do think like, I mean, if you look at states that have had um, significant backlog issues, they've made huge progress but you know our growth in membership for the sexual assault nurse examiners and the International Association of Forensic Nurses is growing so we know that 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 people are um, becoming SANEs and sane certified so so that's all really good news but the bottom line is everybody just has to keep talking about it and and demanding best practice care and and we are we are having the conversation so that's good news
2: and being a sane is such heavy work with really high turnover. So, what keeps you going?
3: If not me, who? When I am the only voice, I have to continue to be that voice. I have to talk to um, the media. I need to talk to other healthcare providers, and and I have to advocate because if there is only, you know. 25 in Georgia I have to be loud and 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 if it's only me then I have to keep going and encourage more people to be there and to step up and do the work because it is rewarding and it's different you know you can say that my field is rough healthcare nursing in general doesn't come without it's ups and downs but at the end of the day You know, knowing that you make a difference, knowing that you can be there for people, that's what keeps you going.
4: You know, Caroline, until talking to Tricia, I'd only really thought about reclaiming that kind of power through a law enforcement lens. You know, like, get the rape kit to bring the perpetrator to justice. But like Tricia says, without centering consent, the trauma inflicted on the patient or survivor is never fully treated.
2: Yeah, Trisha, in all of her amazingness, really shows us what that reclaimed consent can look like on both the macro level, you know, like all of those protocols and consent-centered training that she talked about, as well as the micro level, like her first-person experience of witnessing what happens when consent is not fully part of the process. What's something that you wish
4: more people knew about
3: rape kits and sexual assault exams? Don't be afraid to come in and see a sexual assault nurse ten years later. Now I can't collect evidence, but I sure as, as heck can give you, uh, you know, a head to toe exam that that is trauma informed and can tell you, like, can help you realize that there is no, maybe there is no scar, uh, like physical scars, or maybe I can just plug you into the right healthcare that you need. Like I wish people understood that, you know, that is what we're here for.
2: We promised it wouldn't be a depressing episode, y'all, but we didn't promise it wouldn't fill you with rage. So here we go.
4: What fills me with the most rage, Caroline, is that whatever protections and assurances the Violence Against Women Act does offer right now are under dire threat. I am not being dramatic. And it was probably easy to miss the news of this because... While the entire country was watching Dr. Christine Blasey Ford testify about her alleged sexual assault at the hands of now-Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, Congress failed to reauthorize the Violence Against Women Act. Instead, they just pushed the deadline, and it is now set to expire December 7th unless they vote to re-up it, which means that if it expires, more people will probably be billed for those rape kids— Fewer rape kits are going to be tested. Y'all, no one, no one should have to pay for a sexual assault, medical exam, or forensic rape kit. No one. And between now and December 7th, both mine and Caroline's birthdays are happening. Mm -hmm. And Caroline, we've got a birthday wish.
2: Yeah, we do. And that is to call... Congress harass them until they reauthorize VAWA. Let them hear from you how important that you believe the Violence Against Women Act is and all of its protections for people who have faced sexual abuse. So let's take a note from Marty Goddard and Tricia and all of these resources
4: that sisters have had to make for themselves. And let's put some of the same energy and attention that we've seen around the backlog and also put it toward getting more sanes into more hospitals and simply getting the word out about what rape kits really are and how they work and what we all can do to make the world a safer, more just place.
0: Fuck (laughs) yeah.
4: (laughs) (laughs) All right, y'all. We have talked about so much, and now we want to hear from you. Let us know your thoughts about everything we talked about in this episode. Email us at hello at unladylike.co
2: or find us on social at Unladylike Media. And don't forget to check out our website to find all our sources and resources for this episode at unladylike.co.
4: And while you're there, you can do so many fun things. You can look at photos of us. You can check out all of our episodes. You can sign up for our newsletter that comes out every Wednesday if you want some actually good news about women in the world. And... You can buy yourself some merch. How about a shiny gold
2: finger to flick off the patriarchy? You can also order our book, Unladylike, a field guide to smashing the patriarchy and claiming your space just in time for holiday patriarchy smashing. And you know, researching for that book is honestly what inspired this episode. There's tons of information in there. Inspiring info, again, not just depressing info, about other ways women have rallied together to get the resources we need in times of crisis. And if you're not listening to Unladylike
4: on Stitcher Premium, here's a hot tip. You can hear all of our episodes without ads and get exclusive access to our monthly bonus episodes. So sign up today at stitcher.com premium and use
2: code UNLADYLIKE For a month of free access. Abigail Keel is the senior producer of Unladylike. Nora Ritchie is our associate producer. Mixing and sound design is by Casey Holford. Julie Subrin is our editor. Ash Sanders and Abigail Barr transcribe our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Rattleit. Special thanks to Phil Corbett. And we are your hosts, Caroline Irvin and Kristen Conger. Next week... So,
4: watching a dunk is super satisfying, but what does it feel like to dunk? Oh, man, like, it is, like, I feel like I'm flying.
2: Our episode is going to be a slam dunk.
4: Nothing but net. So, make sure you subscribe to our show and your favorite podcast app so you don't miss it. And leave us a glowing review while you're at it. They really help us out. And remember, y'all, got a problem? Get unladylike. Our episode is going to be a slam dunk. This time, like you mean it. Stitcher.
2: You can
0: think of Household Name episodes as lifelines when you're stuck in a boring conversation. Need to change the subject? Tell them the secrets behind Victoria's Secret or how a single lie turned KFC into a Japanese Christmas tradition. It was a lie. No. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I still regret that. Did you know Panera opened cafes where customers could pay whatever they wanted? That before it was a hippie car, the VW Beetle was created by Nazis.
3: Hitler build a city for the Beetle, <laughs> like the hippie Beetle.
0: <laughs> you can talk about how Lacroix, Crocs, Carhartt, and Canada Goose all became surprisingly cool, and wow your friends with stories of TGI Fridays' wild early days as one of the first singles bars. I'd be standing at the bar on Fridays and say, "Hi, darling. I own this place. I've seemed to work." I'm Dan Bobkoff and I host Household Name from Business Insider and Stitcher. We make this show so you have something to talk about. Subscribe to Household Name for surprising stories about famous brands. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Household Name. Brands you know, stories you don't.
1: Hi, I'm Taylor Hum.
0: And I'm Neil Shea. And we're the hosts of Unfinished Deep South from Witness Docs, We're excited to announce that Season 2 of this show is coming September 14th. It's called Unfinished Short Creek. Season 2 continues to dig deep into America's unfinished business, this time from Short Creek, a community on the Utah-Arizona border.
2: Short Creek has been home to the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a group that broke off from the Mormon Church to continue the practice of polygamy. A man named Warren Jeffs is
1: the prophet and leader of the FLDS Church but in 2007, he was sentenced to life in prison. Now, the people of Short Creek must reckon with their painful past and struggle
2: to define their future.
0: Hear the first two episodes of this uniquely American story on September 14th. Find Unfinished Short Creek in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. One of these dusty old, out-of-print mafia books is called King of Crime. King of Crime! (laughs) I'm here in her living room in Chico, California, and we're just going through memories of her son.
4: All of this talk of wellness, of being healthy and having a
1: positive mindset and all that, it's really caused my anxiety to spike.
0: And I can almost see myself writing them, cross-legged in front of a framed photo of Franklin Jones.
2: But a lynching does more than kill a body. It shatters an identity all the circumstantial evidence, all my research, the interviews, everything, pointed
0: in one conclusive direction. Or so I believed.
1: If I was ever gonna talk about this for the first time publicly, I think that this would be the ideal time because this I really want you to understand this is why I'm so passionate about this.
0: She's hiring drag queens and drag kings and giving them a platform to express themselves and to make money.
1: Their sense of self-worth self-preservation, and ultimately, their sense of justice is what carried them through to
0: the end. What I love so much about story and hearing other people's story is that it's the closest thing that we have to magic.
4: This is Witness Docs.